Open your Bible, please, to Luke 23. We're going to start here in Luke 23, but we're going to be looking at a number of Bible texts as we consider part of this wonderful story. The other night, at our home Bible study, Sue was showing one of the ladies what we're going to be working on. Uh, which our next project at the house is bathroom. And for those of you that don't know, you know that TV show, Flip This House? It's where you buy a house, and then you fix it all up, and then you sell it and make a lot of money. Well, I'm in an eight-year-long flip. <laughs> so I'm actually not going to flip it, but I am in an eight-year-long renovation. And, and, and the lady said to Sue, I'm, su- I'm surprised your husband doesn't take those magazines away from you with all those ideas in them for fixing up the house. Those ideas are great because it helps us think of things to do. Um, we've got three projects on the, on the list for this year, and n- n- I-, I love to think for a long time about them because I'm not a craftsman. I just play one at home. And so I love to talk to guys here that are plumbing experts or builders or electricians or whatever and, and learn little things and watch those TV shows and think and think and think. And then when I do something, usually it comes out pretty good. But no matter how much I think about it, there's always something else to learn. And I find the scripture to be the same way. No matter how much I study it and preach it or read it, there's always more to learn. And, and this week, as I meditated on the, Chris, the, the Easter story, I, I just felt like a new uh, understanding of a wonderful truth came out of one of the characters who I think sometimes is regarded as a bit player in the story. And that uh, bit player would be Barabbas. Follow with me in Luke 23. As I read kind of a lengthy portion, so you can get the feel of, of this story, if it's been a while, maybe since you've read it, Luke 23, 1, then the whole multitude of them arose and led Christ to Pilate, Pilate would be the Roman governor, the governmental authority, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priest and to the crowd, I find no fault in this man. I just want to make a side comment that I I learned. This had nothing to do with my sermon, but I just have to share it with you. Why did Pilate, Jesus says, Yes, I'm a king, and Pilate said, He's not guilty. You know why? Because Pilate knew if if Jesus was really a rebellious leader of the Jews trying to assert himself as king, that the Jews would never have turned him over to them. Because that's what they were wanting. He said, I find no fault in him. Verse 5. But they were the more fierce, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Do you get that feeling? First of all, Pilate says, not in my backyard. 
And then Herod says, great, he's going to do a trick for me. Verse 9, then Herod questioned him with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him and clothed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, he said to them, you have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, I have examined him in your presence, and I find no fault in this man concerning those things which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by, this, by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. Translate that, I will beat him with a whip and release him. For it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, he wished to release Jesus. Again he called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will, therefore, chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed, so that Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Barabbas. He's spoken of briefly here, but he's spoken of in every one of the Gospels. You know, there are, there are not uh, so many events that are covered in every Gospel, and it helps us to understand that there's something important for us here. What's the description of Barabbas? Well, here in Luke 23, 19, it says he had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. And in John 18, he's called a robber. And this word robber is where the title of my sermon comes from. Because there are two words that would generally mean to steal something in Greek, and one of them meant to steal it by stealth or cunning, to sneak around and get something when somebody's not looking. And the other word basically means strong-armed robbery. Strong-arm robbery is a special crime in our criminal system where if you use a gun or use a knife or some weapon and you threaten bodily violence on people, you say, give me your goods or I will, I will hurt you, that's strong-armed robbery. And, and that's one of the words used to describe him. He's called a person who led a rebellion. He's called a murderer. He's called a robber. In Matthew 27, 16, He's called a notorious prisoner. In the King James, it says a notable prisoner. And it literally means a marked man. A marked man. We use that in our English parlance to mean somebody who's got a target on his head of one kind or another. 
In today's world, he would have been on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, and his picture would have been hanging in the post office. That's the kind of guy he was. Now, what's interesting, to go on a little bit further beyond his description and to consider his reputation, and, and that's what I've chosen, the word I've chosen to describe his name, because the name Barabbas probably is not a birth name. It's probably a reputation or a nickname because it literally means a son of the father. Why would you name your son a son of the father? Well, that's a son of the father. Well, duh, of course. But for them to say a son of the father is probably a reference to him being a type of the Messiah, a deliverer of the Jewish people. The things that he did were the kind of Messiah the nation really wanted. Do you remember how many times the, uh, the disciples said to Jesus, is the kingdom coming now? What they really meant was this, are you about to stand up on a soapbox and say, I'm the king, let's throw off the Romans, let's have a rebellion, let's have a a guerrilla war, a civil war, an insurrection, whatever you would want to call it, let's throw them off. They were waiting for that day. This guy, that's what he was about. He was about throwing off the Roman government. He had been involved in one of the small riots against Rome, which were perpetually sputtering up and being trampled out by the armed heel of Rome. There had been bloodshed in which he himself had taken part, and this coarse, red-handed desperado is the people's favorite because he embodied their notions and aspirations, and he had been bold enough to do what every man of them would have done if he had dared. He thought and felt as they did that freedom was to be won by the sword. It's a quote from Alexander McLaren. This guy was a freedom fighter, but his situation as a freedom fighter was this. First of all, he was a prisoner. Mark 15, Barabbas was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. So he wasn't the only one. There was a group of them. He was under a death sentence. He is guilty of murder and he's in prison And they didn't have life in prison for lesser murder. You understand what I'm saying? The scripture doesn't say he was under a death sentence, but it says he was in prison for murder with his fellow rebels. In Mark 15, it says, With Christ they also crucified two robbers. And John 18.40 again says he was a robber, And in Luke, we read this. Then one of the criminals who were hanged, one of those criminals, one of those robbers, blasphemed Christ, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other one answered, rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. According to the Roman government, Barabbas was guilty of crimes deserving death. Someone could certainly say, well, the people of Israel saw him as a freedom fighter. 
while Rome saw him as a rebel guerrilla soldier. Nonetheless, by the standard of those in control, he was a criminal who was on his way to the death penalty. Now, what about his liberation? How did he get set free? What is the lesson here for us today? Pilate went out again to the Jews. This is from John, of course. And he said to them, I find no fault in Christ, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Pilate didn't want to put Jesus to death. First of all, because he didn't believe he was guilty of a crime. Also, another account says that his wife came to him and said, I've had a dream about this man. Don't have anything to do with this man. Pilate did not want to put Jesus to death. But he was a bit of a chicken. He was a political expedient. In all four of these Gospels, we get this feel that Pilate wanted the crowd of people to say, release Jesus. Then... An innocent person wouldn't have been killed, and he would have had an excuse with the leaders of Israel. If he himself said, no, I'm going to release him, then they'd have been mad at him, and he didn't want that. So he says, hey, crowd, who should I release, Jesus or Barabbas? And the crowd said, crucify him. And Pilate went, oh, because it didn't work. See, Pilate thought, surely they'll... This is a nice guy. This is a bad guy. Surely they'll take the nice guy. No, they didn't. The leaders came around and said, Crucify! 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 Come on! Yeah! And he whipped them all up and they all followed like sheep. And so he said, Okay. Barabbas was set free because the leaders of Israel wanted Jesus to be crucified. Now let me put it a different way. Barabbas, a man who deserved to die for crimes he had done, was set free because Jesus, a person who didn't deserve any punishment, was executed on his cross. Have you ever wondered why there were two guys crucified with Christ? It was because there were supposed to be three guys up there. Those two robbers and... Barabbas. I mean, Jesus literally died on Barabbas' cross. Barabbas deserved to be there. Jesus didn't deserve to be there. So what is the picture? What is the picture here in Barabbas? The story of Barabbas is a picture of our salvation. Us, mankind. What does God say about us? He says, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? We struggle sometimes to define it. Here's a simple definition. You shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Any of you matching up to that this week? That is God's standards. God is completely perfect sinlessly perfect, we can barely even imagine it. He is perfect in every way. He's perfect in power. He's perfect in holiness. He's perfect in every way. And he says, listen, you, 
The standard that I want you to live up to is absolute perfection. Barabbas was guilty by the standard of those who had the authority over him, as are we. One of Barabbas' co-conspirators even said it. We deserve this. But this man doesn't deserve it, talking about Jesus. The same is true of us spiritually. By virtue of the one who is in control, we are guilty of sin. I read something recently that contrasted the way human beings think with the way God thinks. And it was contrasting the word excellence with the word righteousness. Excellence, which we often say we are striving for, we're striving to be excellent in our business or this or that. Excellence is being the best in a group. Righteousness is being good by God's standard. It's not hard to declare ourselves to be righteous. All of you here look like real nice folks. Dressed nice, took a shower this morning, brushed your teeth, sitting here all churchified. And you'd probably say, I don't kick the dog or beat my wife. I'm a good provider. I go to the Mariners games even in the losing seasons. That is an excellent person. I've been true to my husband or wife. I'm honest. I'm a committed friend. All good things. Absolutely good things. And the world would be a better place if there was more like you. But God says the standard is perfection, not excellence. And so what's the result in our life? The result is the sentence from God toward mankind, which is the soul that sins shall die. Man, that's harsh. That is so harsh. And it goes all the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve. This, is, this little, this little one, one sentence, this short sentence verse is a summary of God's interaction with Adam and Eve. Unless we think God is, uh, what's the word? Too hard to get along with. God put Adam and Eve in a perfect place. And as I thought about it this week, it just dawned on me afresh. He only gave them one rule. One rule. Don't eat from that tree. That's it. You just kick your heels back and plow the garden and love your wife and your husband and have a great time. But don't eat from that tree. One stinking rule. And what did Adam and Eve do? Just like your kids when you say, don't touch that. It's the same thing. And God told them up front. He not only gave them the rule up front, but like an excellent parent, he gave them the punishment up front. He said, now look, if you do this, dying you will die. He warned them. He told them what was going to happen. God was beyond fair. He was gracious. And so what happened as a result of Adam and Eve? Well, Romans 5 says this. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for by the one man's offense death reigned. This verse says two things that are really important to understand. It says this. Number one, 
Adam took the test for everybody. By one man, sin entered the world. And thus death spread to all men. And then it says this, because we are sinners, we have all sinned. And so death comes on us not only because of the judicial act of God on mankind for Adam's sin, it also comes on us because we all sin. And if I said, how many of you sinned this week, I'd have to be the first one raising my hand up. Because none of us lives a perfect life. Even as Christians, we don't live a perfect life. We strive for it, but we don't. Mankind is in the deep weeds. Through Adam's sin, God declares every human being to be a sinner. And he declares us to be a sinner because we sin. But the wonderful news is this. There is a substitute to take the place of mankind. There is a substitute. The possibility of a substitute was given to us in a pictorial form, right with the first condemnation against Adam and Eve. What did God do right away with Adam and Eve? They, they found out they were naked because of, because of their, the opening of their eyes and their sin, and so God killed an animal, took the skin, and covered them up. Right away, we get, a, we get a possibility, an idea, that it's possible for somebody else to die instead of you. What a wonderful thing. That's the graciousness of God. Those who accuse God of being heavy-handed don't take into account the fact that he was clear in the, in the rule. He was clear in the punishment. And now he's gracious in following it up. Right from the first sin and the first sentence of death, God is willing to accept someone else's death in place of the sinful human. Why didn't God strike them dead right at the moment? Because that's not what he wanted. He wanted to be gracious. The first sacrifice was of an animal to provide covering. Later, when the law was introduced, we see animal sacrifice specified and defined as to method and value. But it isn't until Jesus comes that we fully grasp what God had planned all along, which is told to us in 1 Peter, knowing that you were not redeemed or bought back from sin with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. God paid for our sins through the death of of Christ. Lewis Sperry Schaefer in his Systematic Theology writes this, as fallen or sinful man stands obligated to God as an offender, both in his federal head and in himself, against his creator and against the divine government, he owes an obligation which he could never pay in time or eternity. Unless a substitute shall intervene, there is no hope for any member of the fallen race. No sin-laden human being could be a substitute for a fellow being. The substitute must be sinless as well as prepared to bear those immeasurable judgments which divine holiness must impose upon sin." 
None of us could pay for our own sin. None of us could pay for other sins of other people. So Christ paid for it. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the, the just or the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus did not deserve to die. Barabbas deserved to die. Barabbas had committed crimes. He was guilty. He was on his way. He was a short while away from the death penalty. Christ came in innocent and took his place. And that's the truth of God for us today. You, before you knew Christ as Savior, were on your way not only to physical death, but spiritual death. And Christ stepped in the way and said, I'll take their punishment. And while Christ was on the cross, God heaped his anger at sin onto Christ, and Christ could bear it because he was the Son of God. And he bore that sin, and he died and shed his blood, and God said, that's enough. That is payment enough for the sins of the world. And because of that, I can be saved. Now there's one more point that I want you to grasp today as we would think about understanding what it was like for Christ. And, and that point is this. What was the price of the substitute? What did it cost the substitute to stand in our place? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For God made Christ, he made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The sermon's about to get a whole lot lighter, but I hope also a whole lot more deep in your soul. What are some things you really don't like? How about rats? How many of you really hate rats? Mice? How about snakes? Now, I know there's some people here who like rats, and there's some people who like snakes, because in every crowd this side, there's somebody who goes, oh, yeah, rats are cool. <laughs> I understand. I understand. How about the smell of garbage? You like the smell of garbage? You like to go to the dump? I took somebody to the dump. I took a, a, a youngster to the dump one day, and I said, hey, breathe real deep. And I said... That's why you should go to college. I so said, look at all these guys in these orange jumpsuits here. You like garbage? You like the smell of garbage? You like your garbage can at the end of two weeks right before it gets picked up? You want that? You know, whatever you can think of that you really don't like. Here's one that I don't like. Insulation. I have to go up in my crawl space every so often. And I got, you know, big insulation like this, and I got to crawl through there and find a place, put a wire down or do something. Man, I hate that. Cover all up and, ugh, gives me the creeps. And I don't think mine's even fiberglass. It's probably, you know, the, the nicer stuff. But there's, I want you to think about something you really abhor, something that disgusts you. 
And here's why I want you to think about it. Because Christ, Christ was made sin for you. How disgusting do you suppose sin is to God? At least as disgusting as a rat is to you, or a snake, or garbage, or whatever. And Christ, while he was on the cross, got all your garbage dumped on him. Ugh. And he had to suffer and endure it. I think sometimes when we think about the cross and Christ there, it was like he's going, okay, three hours and this will be over. And we don't get it. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He had to endure our sin and God's punishment of our sin so that we could become righteous. The eternally righteous Son of God not only suffered great physical horror and death, but he experienced the wickedness of sin for me and for you. How do we acknowledge that substitute? How do we say thank you? What do you do for somebody that takes your place in front of the firing squad? We can't even imagine that. You know, here's two of you on death row, and, or, or, or one person free and one on death row, and said, I'll take his place. What, what do you do for that person? You were Barabbas. And Christ died on your cross. You were the strong-armed robber and murderer who deserved to die, but Christ stepped in and took your place at the execution. How do you respond to that? The first way that you just respond, I, I think, is to believe. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The symbol... For the medical community, the, I believe it's Caduza, if I get that right, the snake on the pole. It's used, I know, in the paramedic emblem. Snake on a pole. Remember the Old Testament story? God sent these fiery serpents in punishment. They bit people. And the, the, the solution after Moses prayed was God said, make a serpent, put it on a pole, and if the people will look at the serpent, they will be healed. It was a picture of Christ. Like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And every time Jesus used the word lifted up, everybody knew he was talking about crucifixion. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Friend, if you're here today and you've never believed in Christ, you need to see him dying for your sin and realize that he took the bullet for you spiritually Christ took your place on the cross could any request be too extravagant and yet this is a simple thing this is doable by any human being no money is required no fame or influence is necessary no person is too weak to do this what a wonderful thing Christ says believe in me I'm here paying for your sin believe in me he asks us to decide to believe. Belief 
is something that comes about at a point in time when we recognize the truth of God and we recognize that our condition and we say, I believe in Christ. And when we do that, there is a transaction of faith in which God saves us. The second acknowledgement of the substitute is this, a dedicated life. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable surface, service. What are the mercies of God? Mercy means when God did not give you what you deserved. You were Barabbas. You deserved to die. You deserved punishment and hell forever. But what did God do? He said, no, I won't give that to you. I'll give that to Christ. And you come now and believe, and once you believe, dedicate yourself to a life for God. He says it's a reasonable service. If somebody dies for you, it's reasonable for you to serve them in your life, because without them, your life would not be. If you lost your wallet, and then it was found and returned intact with all those $100 bills that you carry... Would you give the finder a reward? Or would you just grab it and go, thank you? If you did, if that was you on the other end, you'd go, well, that ungrateful so-and-so. He didn't even give me a hug or kiss my feet or something. Honestly, folks, think about it. Your eternity has been made Life and not death by Christ. There is nothing unreasonable for you to give him in response to that. If someone was standing by the lake and saved your child from drowning, you would do way more than say thank you. Christ saved you from drowning eternally. It is not unreasonable that you live your life in a righteous way out of appreciation for him. There's one more response that I think God deserves, and that's this, a delight in worship. Therefore, Jesus, also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. If you don't know your Old Testament real well, you won't get this inference. In the Old Testament, when somebody was unclean ceremonially or literally as in maybe they had a, a communicable disease or some disease that made them ritually unclean. They had to go stay outside the city wall, outside the camp, if you will. They were out there, and when any person walked by, they had to go, unclean, unclean, so people would stay way away from them. Boy, that'd make you feel pretty good, wouldn't it? They said, Jesus is like that person. They took him outside the city and crucified him, and everybody said, he's nothing, he's nothing. And they said, let us go out to him. Let us go out and be with him. Let us not be ashamed of him. For we here have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. Christ could have protested his conviction and from my read of the situation with Pilate he would have prevailed and been set free because Pilate knew he was innocent but what did he do as a lamb before his shears is silent so he opened not his mouth why 
because he knew you would never survive the cross and the wrath of God. So he stood there and he took it. How much praise does he deserve? How many worship songs are too many? What kind of thoughts ought to be coming out of our mind day by day as God not only takes care of our spiritual life but our physical life? Praise ought to be just as common to us as prayer is. Thank you, God, for this. Thank you for that. God, you're good. Thank you for saving my soul. It ought to be somewhat normal with us. Maybe it doesn't come out verbally so everybody hears, but it goes on. The ability to identify people by their genetic code or DNA has been a marvelous tool for putting criminals behind bars and for exonerating the innocent. A number of men have been released from prison after being convicted of horrible crimes because the irrefutable evidence of the genetic fingerprint said they were innocent. We don't need to have a DNA test to know that Christ was innocent, that he, well, he suffered the death penalty unjustly. He is the most innocent man ever to die a criminal's death. And he did it on purpose for you and for me. We're going to sing a couple of wonderful songs that will give us an opportunity to lift Christ up and to speak of his greatness. It truly is the least we can do as we reflect on him and what he's done for us. Worship team, please come.